Morning, happy Father's Day. Again, we uh, appreciate uh, the men in our lives who have pointed us to Christ and, and have showed us uh, what it means to be a man of faith. And again, we want to offer that as a gift on the table over there. So, so whether you're a dad or not, um, you know, men, that's a gift to you to say thank you. Uh, enjoy a nice little treat on us. Uh, but again, it's also an encouragement for us as men to be reminded constantly of the role that we play that God has given us to lead our families, to lead our wives and our children, to lead the church into a place of God's holiness. And we should never, ever take that lightly, the responsibility that God has given us to do. So we thank you, and I thank you again for all the things that you guys do in this church. So happy Father's Day and enjoy. How many of you are baseball fans? Okay, yeah, we got some baseball fans. So back in the 80s and 90s, baseball uh, had what was, in the 2000s, what was known as the steroid era. Uh, It was a time period where there was an offensive firestorm in baseball where people were hitting the prestigious 500 home run club, people like Barry Bonds, Alex Rodriguez, uh, Manny Ramirez. Uh, And in 1998, Sports fans were glued to their television as Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa battled for the prestigious and elusive Roger Maris home run record of 61 home runs. And in that time, I mean, everybody was watching. Every at-bat was filmed, and both men would break the record with Mark McGuire actually winning it to then only have it be broken a few years later by Barry Bonds, who then would go on to hit 73 home runs. But again, a lot of this was because of the use of steroids. And as more information came out and more investigations began to happen, more and more players came clean and basically said, yeah, I've, I've been on the juice. I, I've been taking roids, and we've been a part of this. And nobody, I think, in baseball gave a more sincere and heartfelt apology than Jason Giambi, who was playing for the Yankees at the time. And in 2003, here's what he said when it came out, uh, and there was no way for him to basically deny it at this point that he was part of the, the steroids. Here's what Jason Giambi told the press. He said, I was wrong for doing that stuff. What, should have done, what we should have done a long time ago was stand up as players, ownership, and everybody and said we made a mistake. I'm sorry for doing that stuff. Now, Giambi wasn't an idiot. Many players had stipulations in their contracts that if they were caught doing illegal activity that they would have to forfeit much of their contract, and he was now on a seven-year, $120 million contract. And so he said, I'm going to come clean. Yeah, I did some stuff, and then I'm going to play 11 more years of baseball. So clearly, what Giambi shared was heartfelt, and it truly bothered him that he engaged in such an activity, right? Well, as we are discussing The sermon series, I Have Sinned, again, we were going through scripture, looking at individuals who cry out their sinfulness to God. But as much as people cry out their sinfulness, I think we need to understand that God often can see behind the curtain. God can look into our heart and really understand 
are we really sincere about all our apologies to Christ? So though we may say it on the surface, God knows what lies within there. And so we're going to take a look at King Saul today. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, and to just give you a little quick history of where we are at. Again, God has called Abraham to be the, the father of many nations, that through Abraham will be the, the Savior that will come. His people are enslaved in Egypt, and Moses leads him out. Joshua then takes leadership and leads them into the Promised Land and begins to fight all of the enemies of God. And then after Joshua, we have this period of judges who are ruling. And then after the judges, the Israelites basically turn and say, you know what, we want to be like every other nation around us. We want to have a king. And the prophet Samuel came and spoke to them and said, you know what you're asking for? This is only going to cause problems. God is your king. You don't need a king like every other nation. And they pleaded and said, no, we want a king. And so God said, fine, it's not going to go well for you, but I will give you a king. And so out of the smallest tribe comes Saul. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin and he is anointed as the first King of Israel. And so in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is called to destroy the Amalekites. This was a group of people living uh, in the area of, of Israel at this time, and they were a group that lived south of Jerusalem, and God said, I want you to destroy them. So 1 Samuel 1, verse 1, chapter 15, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they weighed laid as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle, and sheep, camels, and donkeys. So God says to Saul, Saul, I want you to go and destroy this group of people. I'm, I, and, I, and it's total destruction. We're talking to everybody, men, women, children, infants, any type of animal. Saul, it is your responsibility to completely annihilate this group of people. Now that word, total destruction, is the Hebrew word for harem. It literally means a dedicated destruction or a destruction that is devoted to God. Now, when I read that, and you probably might be thinking, wait a minute. God is calling Saul to kill the women and the innocent children and the infants as well? That, that doesn't seem right of God. It doesn't, it doesn't mesh with my understanding that God is a, a good and, and a gracious and a loving God. Why would God, if he's supposed to be so good, call for the innocent destruction of these people? We have to understand that this is not in the only place that Scripture used this. The first time we actually see it is when Joshua went into Jericho. It was the same idea that he said, I want you to totally and completely destroy the people of Jericho. And the reason why is because you must have done something really bad that God wants your complete destruction. 
So to understand this, we actually need to go back to Exodus 17 really quick, that when the Israelites had left Egypt and they crossed through the Red Sea and they're wandering through the promised land or the, uh, the desert, they eventually are coming up to the promised land. And when they get up there, it's the Amalekites who end up fighting against the Israelites. So they've been wandering and wandering and wandering, and as they're getting close to the promised land, they stand in the way of preventing God's people from getting involved in taking care of uh, getting back into the promised land. And this was 400 years before this command to Saul. Okay, so what happens in Exodus 17 is 400 years before 1 Samuel 15. And so God is angry that this nation sought to destroy his people. And he says in Exodus 17, 17, 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So God made a promise to Joshua. And God made a promise to his people that said, someday I am going to completely and totally destroy this group of people for what they did against my people. And you might be thinking, but Adam, we're talking about women and children. That doesn't seem, I mean, we don't, we don't punish the innocent, right? We, we don't punish kids for what their parents have done. This, this doesn't seem right to me. We need to keep a couple things in mind. That when they attacked the Israelites back in in Exodus there, this wasn't the only time that this happened. We actually see the Amalekites also attacking Israel in Numbers 14, in Judges 3, and also in Judges 6. So there was a pattern of the Immaculates coming against the Israelites and God's people. And when you look at the book of Esther... Haman is the one who wanted to basically annihilate and commit genocide against the Jews. And you know Haman? Haman was a descendant of the king of the Amalekites. And like many nations, pagan nations at this time, many of these pagan nations engaged in child sacrifice that they would offer their children on an altar to a god or gods with the, think, the thought that if I offered up my child, that there would be a blessing in my life. And in Deuteronomy 25, when God is reiterating what is going to happen out of Exodus 17, here's what he says. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, They met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. And when the Lord your God gives you rest from the enemies around you in the land, he is giving to you to possess as an inheritance. You shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Did you catch that? When they were weary and worn out, who did they attack? Those who were lagging behind. Behind, And who would have been lagging behind? Most likely would have been your women and your children and your elderly and your disabled. Those who were the most vulnerable were the ones the Amalekites chose to attack. And so this was not just a group sinned all the way over here and now I'm going to punish them. 
It's a group that sinned and attacked his people, and then the next generation attacked his people, and the next generation attacked his people, and the next generation attacked his people. It's not God being cruel. No, this is God's attempt to stop cruelty. Because these are children that would grow up and honor the gods and goddesses of their time and honor the ways of their parents and continue to engage in the horrific practices and violence against God's people. So God said, I've had enough. So Saul, go and totally wipe this group out. So that was the command in verses 1 through 3. So now we come to verse 4. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Talim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all of his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, and everything that was good. They were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and he said, I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me. It has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out the Lord all that night. So Saul gathers his men, so they go out to fight the Amalekites. And did you catch that? The Canaanites, who were helpful to the Israelites, God spared and let them go. So God is good, and God is gracious and merciful. So Saul goes, and, and they attack, but what does he do? He brings the king back alive. And, and, and they get all of the best sheep and, and cattle and fat calves and lambs, and all the ones that weren't good, he said, okay, we'll, we'll kill those ones off, but we'll keep all of the best. And so Saul disobeyed. He was supposed to totally destroy everything, but he didn't. And it says that God was grieved that he made Saul king. So does that mean that God didn't know? Does that mean that God made a mistake? Is, is that what I'm supposed to interpret from the scriptures here when it says that he's grieved? Well, we need to be very clear. That God does not make mistakes. Okay? God knows and God has a plan. And when it means that if we begin to think that God could have made a mistake and that we were wrong, what else might we be wrong about in our faith? That leaves us in a very dangerous predicament that if I begin to believe that God makes mistakes and, and God doesn't know, I mean, my whole faith could be completely wrong. But that's not the case, because later in verse 29 of this chapter, it says that God doesn't lie or change his mind. Okay? God knows exactly what he wants to do. So what's happening here? Well, we need to understand it this way. When it says that, that God was grieved that he made Saul king, that's what we call something as anthropopathic. Anthropopathic. I know it's kind of a fancy word. 
But what that means is we are actually attributing a human emotion to God that we experience and understand, but God doesn't really experience. So things like guilt and regret, God does not experience that because God does not feel guilty for what happens. God does not regret the decisions that he made. That is in place to help us understand the situation better. And really what we need to grasp is that this is helping us understand about how Saul has turned away from God's relationship, not that God had turned away from Saul. Because God's always been consistent, right? That if we obey, there is blessing. If we disobey, there are consequences and curses. And God has always been true to us. That confession and repentance brings grace and mercy and forgiveness to our lives. Okay, those things do not change about God. So again, this is a way to help us understand what Saul had done was wrong. It's not that God is like, oh, I can't believe I'm such a fool. I didn't know he was going to make that mistake. God knew, but this is for our benefit to understand that. So now Saul's about to be exposed, and we're going to see what is lying in the heart of Saul. So now we're in verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and, and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but, but we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, you did not become the head of the tribes of Israel. The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission. Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you, not pounce? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was to be devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But, the Lord, but Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So Samuel goes to find Saul. And Saul's busy setting up this monument in his honor. And when Samuel finds him, he's like, Saul, there you are. Isn't it amazing? We won. I followed God's commands. Oh, this is great. Oh, this is the best day ever. And Samuel's like, Saul, what are you talking about? Why do I hear the bleeding of animals? Why do I hear them crying out? Saul, you are a liar, and it's these lowly animals that are calling you out. 
And so what does Saul try to do? Oh, 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 Samuel, Samuel, it was the soldiers. The soldiers did it. They brought back the animals. And, well, we, we killed the rest. Did you see what Saul did there? It was the soldiers' fault for the bad stuff. But I'm going to include myself in the good stuff when we killed everything else. So don't want me in with the bad stuff here, all right, Samuel? I did what I was supposed to do. And Samuel's like, would you stop it? All you're trying to do is deflect. You're just trying to blame someone else for your problems. You have sinned. You have disobeyed against God. And he's like, that's not true. I went on the mission. I destroyed the Amalekites. That's what God told me to do, and that's what I did. I, I don't understand why, why there's a problem for this. And he says, look, I brought back the king, and we brought back the animals. You know what we were going to do with the animals? We were actually going to devote them. We were going to have a big sacrifice to God. We brought back all of the best because that's what God deserves, Samuel. And so now, all Samuel is doing, instead of blaming, now he's just trying to shift and rationalize his sin as if it's a good thing for what he has done. It's kind of like, you know, the, the, when you're talking to a kid and you're like, did you eat that cookie? And the kid's like, no. And there's cookie falling out of his mouth and you can see there's a half a cookie behind his hand. Like that's, that's what's going on here with Saul. He's just trying to get out of this. And Samuel's like, look, he doesn't want your offering. He doesn't want you sacrificing these animals. What he wanted from you was obedience from the start. And so because you were unwilling to follow and trust God, God has rejected you and is now going to strip away your kingdom. And that might seem a little bit harsh because we might be thinking, but Saul was trying to do something good. I mean... Didn't, didn't we learn all about Leviticus again and the sacrifices and, and how they were supposed to do that? I mean, it seems like Saul was doing right here for God. But we are so quick, aren't we, to point out our goodness to God and how we should be rewarded when really, again, we should be thankful that we're not destroyed for our disobedience to God. But that's what our human heart does. We have to constantly keep reminding God of how good we are when instead we should just be glad that we are alive and we've not been taken off the face of the earth. So now verse 24. Samuel speaks, or Saul speaks. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command in your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. And now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. I've sinned, God. Samuel, I've sinned. I've seen the errors of my ways. And he even gives that little bit of an insight. Why did I do it? Because I was afraid of these guys. Maybe it was the soldiers that wanted to do this. Maybe it was really them pushing it. And Saul was like, I just was afraid of them. I'm sorry. I, I was meant to be the king. I should have stood up to them and followed the Lord's commands. Let, let's go back. Let's go back so I can worship God. And now verse 26, how God responds. Saul and Samuel went back. 
And God was pleased and forgave Saul and did not strip away his kingdom. Right? Now, that, that's not what it said. That would, have been the, that would have been the fairy tale ending, right? No, here's what it actually says. Verse 26. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Wait a minute. Adam, you said earlier that if we confess and repent, that God would offer grace and mercy and forgiveness. How come God is not doing it? You told me that the character of God has not changed. Why is he now rejecting Saul, even though Saul is bringing a heart of confession? Well, God knows our hearts, right? So let's see what's really going on in the heart of Saul. Verse 27. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught the the hold of the hem of his robe, and he tore it. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He is the glory of Israel, who does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that should change his mind. And Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me a gag, king of the Amalekites. And a gag came to him, confidently thinking, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother may be childless among women. And Samuel put a gag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. So he goes to leave, and Saul's like, no, 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 don't leave. And he, and he rips a piece of, of Samuel's cloak, and it's a very symbolic nature of, of basically God saying, I am ripping the kingdom away from you. But why is he holding on? Why is it that Saul is so desperate? Because, see, what Saul is really clinging to is his own fame and his power and his prestige in the kingdom. Because what does he say? And he says it again in verse 30, I have sinned. But he says, Samuel, come back and honor me before the elders and the people of Israel. See, this whole process, Saul has been completely self-focused, right? Everything that he's been doing is for his own benefit, his own self-preservation. Because what happened when Samuel went to go find him, what was he doing? He was setting up a monument to himself. That's where his heart was centered. And then what does he do? He blames it on the soldiers. And then he tries to rationalize his sin. And he says, I completely destroyed everyone. And you know what? That was also a lie. Because later in 1 Samuel 30 and 1 Chronicles 4, the Amalekites are still attacking the Israelites. Which means he did not completely destroy the people like he was supposed to. So Saul is a liar. And so all Saul was doing was a bunch of political posturing before the people of Israel while giving lip service to God. 
All he wanted to do was avoid the consequences that were going to come his way because he never really had a heart for God. He had a heart for the people and didn't really want to honor the Lord with his own heart. And so why was Saul rejected as king? Because what he gave was a false pretense of confession and repentance. Saul never really actually meant what he was going to say. So Samuel goes back with him to finish what he was supposed to do and actually kills the king. And what I like about this is some translations will say that Samuel actually went back and hacked to death the king Agag, which probably makes more sense of what God wanted than just the simply he put a sword through him. Because what God wanted was total destruction, and what God wanted was disobedience, and Saul did not give that. So when he cried out, I have sinned, God saw right through it. So where does that leave us? How does that translate to our hearts, the story of Saul in 1 Samuel 15? Bishop Sanderson was a Puritan bishop in England in the 1600s, and and when he read the story, he wrote it and said, this story exposes the futility of what many of us believe, that good intention is a right rule of conscience and a good guide of conduct. Good intention is not a principle that we live on. We love the idea of good intention. Well, I meant to do right because it it leaves this avenue of love and grace and mercy. Well, okay, you meant to do right, so that's okay. But God is saying, I don't want good intention. I want obedience. I want you to trust me as your Lord and Savior. That is what I want from you. So it's not a matter of what you think is best. It's a matter of what God has called you to do. And many of us like to play this game. We play this game where we offer apologies and promises of change. And we say that, God, this time I'm going to get it right. God, this time I really mean it. And all we do is expose our hearts of sin when we say that. Remember when God called David, who would be the next king after Saul? When God called him in 1 Samuel 16, he said, The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at our hearts. God knows what's in our hearts. We can't fool God. We can't trick him. God is completely aware of what we're doing. And while the insincerity of our words and our actions may dupe an entire society and people around us, God is able to stand there and see right through that. And so the next time you come before God and you say, God, I'm sorry, we really need to consider for a moment before we waste our breath, do we actually mean what we are saying? Or am I just giving God another lip service to avoid the consequences of what might happen? We better make sure that our words align with what's in our hearts and our hearts are aligned with the will of God. But here's the good news. 
If the next time we need to do that, and we truly are sorry, and we truly want to bring confession to Him, and we truly want to repent, and I want to turn from my sinful ways, and I want to walk in the holiness of God, God will forgive you. You know, we spoke about David two weeks ago. And again, David was a a man after God's own heart. And and we read in the Psalms of, of how he just poured his heart out to God. And in Psalm 86, David writes this. He says, Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God and have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. And when I am distressed, I call to you because you answer me. When we have a heart like that, when we have a heart that truly calls out to the God that saves us and says, God, I am pleading with you. I am wrapping my arms around your legs for mercy and forgiveness. And I really get what I did was wrong and I hate myself for it. And I do not want to live this way any longer because you are the only God that exists. Then God reaches out to us and puts his hands on us and says, my child, you are forgiven. And then we proceed to go through all of the things wrong that we've done. And we we list all of the horrific things. And God says, I've forgiven you. And you're like, but no, God, I got to tell you some more. And God says, I've forgiven you. And you're like, but God, I don't know how bad I am. And God says, I have forgiven you. Because that is the character of God that does not change. And again, we know that. Because as sinners destined for the wrath of God and the destruction of hell. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to remind us, to show to us, this is the extent of my love for you. That if you embrace Christ, then you are forgiven. And if you are sincere in your heart about that, then Christ is yours and salvation is yours and forgiveness is yours. So if you are willing to confess and repent and be motivated by that heart of understanding, then we are forgiven because a true heart finds true forgiveness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, um, again, so often we come before you just in gratitude when we hear your word. Lord, we can look at Saul and say, I've been there. I've been that that guy. I've been the guy that has just blown smoke out in your face with the thought that uh, if I just say it, it'll be okay. But Lord, you know what lies and lingers in our hearts. And so I pray and I ask, Lord, that we would get right with you out of a desire to understand that what is best for us is to be in your loving arms. That you would convict us, Father, of not just... You know, how we've gone wayward, but how we have dishonored you and and seek to honor ourselves. But above all, I am so grateful that it doesn't matter what we've done or how much we have done. God, you are willing to forgive. And that never changes. Amen.